You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos, and you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. In today's program, Father Paul explains the difference between factual and real and ends with a subtle observation about the deception of the serpent in Genesis. I am happy to introduce Father Paul on the Bible as Literature podcast, Tarazi Tuesdays. Let's go to the Eucharistic literature because it's stunning. You know, it was, was discovered at the beginning of the 20th century. It's not that old. And then you're talking about the city, which is called in Arabic Ras Shamra. It's just north of Lataki in the neighborhood. It's a very interesting place to visit. Where suddenly they discovered texts, any language unknown. But it was Semitic, and they figured it out. Then they learned about the myth of Baal and so on and so on. But they learned also about the setting of this society at that time. You cannot extrapolate to speak about the actual residence of Rath Shamra of today. It doesn't work like that. Actually, they don't speak Ugaritic. They speak Arabic and most of them are Muslims that could not have been by them because Islam started in the seventh century. I mean, you have to be logical in speaking. So let's forget about this universal truth or thing or so on. So fact is from the verb faccio, facere, to do, to make, from which we have artificial. You make it. And technically speaking, factual is the opposite of real. You make it. Now, factual, let's go for artifact, it's something you make, like the table. You don't find the table in, let's use common words, in nature. But the table is wood. The wood you find in nature. So my hearers, please, let's learn these things. So a table is factual. You can touch it, actually. You can bump into it and hurt yourself. How can I tell you it doesn't exist? But when you start using the word real, let alone true, I have my question mark regarding that. Only to say, are we saying the same thing? Real is what is. There is a matter of public life in ancient Rome. If you're coming to visit me in the evening, let's say you are a patrician and I'm a patrician, to gossip, someone like Julius Caesar would tell you, excuse me, 
I want to debate the res publica. I have no time. And that's the difference, as I underline in my book, between the Romans and the Greeks. The Greeks, until now, much like the Arabs and the Midwesterners, you know, like when you ask someone, let's meet, have a cup of coffee at Caribou. <laughs> you sit there and you solve the problems of the world. That's why Father Mark and I love to meet at Caribou, because we solve everything just by sitting there and talking. That would be the Greek in us. <laughs> but the Roman, and I'm talking the Roman of those times, not the Byzantine Roman. It's business. Hey? Might I point out that today's coffee was brought to you by Bootstrap Coffee Roasters on the West Side. <laughs> <laughs> this is local. This is res publica. <laughs> okay. So, factual, if you like, is more tangible. The res publica is not tangible in the same sense. but to salvage Plato, is more on the level of the essence. The wood. Table is a table. Door is a door. But the reality of both is the wood. Because you can have an iron table, an iron door. So real, in my terminology, means functional within the parameters of the matter at hand. That is, if it is not, then it is used out of order. Like, we're meeting two patricians to discuss the res publica of Rome. Suddenly, you make an aside to gossip or to joke as I do, although my jokes are always realis. They touch the matter. But you start talking. How is the weather going to be next week? I mean, if it has nothing to do, if the question regarding the weather has to do with the planning of our next meeting to discuss the res publica, then it is part of the deal. But if it is just you want to know what the weather is like because you're planning a trip with your family to go to Duluth, that has nothing to do with the matter. I wouldn't stop you to talk about it, but you may not include it in the notes of the meeting, of the discussion. It's like what Father Mark said about where the coffee that I drank this morning was brought off. I bet you it's not going to be on the podcast unless he leaves it to teach you a lesson. <laughs> we'll see about that. So, when I hear people starting talking about God in Genesis 1.1, for me, it's already out of order. 
because they are talking about God the way the question is about the weather of next week. It's not dealing with the subject matter. And this is the importance of the Dabar in Semitic languages that theologians never understand unless you understand Arabic. An example of how North American seminarians say, I'm imposing on them the nominal sentence as reality and thus perceive that I'm imposing on them how to understand the text. Ungodly reader responds heresy in the teaching of modern literature. Nowadays, people use the reader response. Even I met a Palestinian professor, but there is a text and each one perceives it in one's own way. That's why I have sessions in my class to ask my students how we put it. But this is a calamity. Unless the text is written with that purpose. And here I always throw the joke by Metropolitan George Khudr, who introduced me to scripture and yet scandalized me once on the airplane on a trip to Romania for a conference. I said, Sayyidina, what are you reading? He said, modern poetry. I said, have you, have you read poetry? I said, Sayyidina, I don't read poetry, let alone modern poetry. He said, modern poetry is interesting. The words have no meaning. It's just the ultimate sound that matters. <laughs> I did not reply. And the plane did not crash. The proof is that I'm the living. <laughs> and because his comment was, you should, Nadeem. <laughs> you should read this. Anyway, here I come back to the difference between Greek and Latin regarding the definite article before a personal pronoun are mentioned that uppercase does not solve the matter since some texts are onshul, whereas others are minuscule. Let me explain to my readers. You have some manuscripts, because it's difficult to change to write in both. You would have all them in capital letters or all in lowercase. The first ones are called technically in scholarship unseal, unshul, and then minuscule the others. So here, it's very interesting to realize, and I'm talking about Greek and Latin texts. You know, this is the way they are written. And you remember, or you should know that even the division between words did not exist. They would have a certain number of letters by line. To control the fact that should a tablet be missing a corner or a manuscript, torn, you know how in scholarship you can reconstruct, you know that so many letters are missing and you try to figure out what makes the best sense, which is very interesting for me because they have exactly the approach I am inviting you to take. They do it scientifically. It's not that 
no, I like it better if the author was really saying this here. No, you don't like it better. You have to prove your point to your colleagues. Consequently, my hearers, unless, and I call you my hearers because my text goes this way, unless you are hearing the text in its original, not only language, original language, but original setting of which language is only one element, albeit the most important. But you're talking about the text that is written out of and for the Respublica of the Syrian desert of the third century BC. Notice the importance I give to the date because of the hegemony of Alexander the Great. The language is important because it's Hebrew. But remember what I said about Hebrew compared to modern Hebrew. Okay? So unless you are hearing the text in this original setting, you cannot prove or show that you understood correctly. It doesn't work. You just perceive it as in reader response. It's like today in a class. Okay, let's read Shakespeare, obviously in English. You can't impose on everybody in the classroom. I mean, English, obviously, it's old English. But, uh, but suppose you are in Paris. Now, in high school, you can see, let's read Shakespeare, and then you do it in French. But at the university, you're not supposed to do that. But then in my time, I remember, you had teachers of literature that would teach you how to analyze things. I remember one of the questions that I had in the baccalaureate and so on. I'll never forget it. He said, in a French play, a man asked a woman that he met. And his question was, are you looking for me? But for us today, are you looking for me and were you looking for me has the same effect. And my professor said, notice how the man asked, were you looking for me? He wants to know whether she was thinking of me before we met. Okay, when I grew up, French literature was taught Nowadays, the teacher goes around the classroom asking how each student is perceiving and reacting to what that student is hearing. Understand how the sounds hit that student. And that is not allowed. Mm -hmm. In my conversation with the great Dudna, who asked me directly a question, so what do you say about, since you're challenging everybody to take a decision about this approach of the Reformation that everybody reads the Bible and understands it personally, I said, remember Matthew 23. The teaching, that's why it's called teaching is taught. And the responsibility of the teacher is make sure that you perceived what the text is saying. But the decision is yours because you can still debate with your teacher. 
but it's not that you do it by reacting. So I need to say this because my critique, as you notice, is across the board to the entire Jews, Christians, doesn't make any difference. And in this regard, just imagine that this is what the scripture of God was doing in the Garden of Eden and at Horeb, issuing specific commands to be perceived but each one according to one's predilection. Just imagine. Okay? And take 10 minutes to figure this out. Not during the listening to my podcast, but later. Just imagine the outcome. Now, anyone would tell me, even you, the hearers, that's ridiculous, Father Paul, precisely. But you are doing it without realizing. And I'm inviting you to realize that you're mishandling the text. And this is precisely what the serpent was doing to the woman in Genesis 3. And I'll come back to that, how he pulled her, her leg. And no hearer is expecting my explanation. Trust me on that. This is exactly what the serpent is doing with Eve. But he is doing it textually. I'm going to show you that. I did not notice it until I worked on the text for this podcast. So don't tell me that you knew it. If you didn't know it from me, then you cannot know it. Later, I shall show that he succeeded only because the woman was debating theologically and not literarily. That is, not being aware that the serpent was proposing a theological rehearing that does not differentiate between Elohim and Yahweh Elohim in the same way as the text itself does. For you, Richard, the serpent tells, but Elohim told you not to eat from that tree. And we have all no problem with that. And I didn't have any problem when I wrote my book until three days ago when I realized that it's not Elohim that said to the man not to eat from the tree. It is Yahweh Elohim. And for a few times you have Eve repeating Elohim, then the text very cunningly, to continue the story, reverse to Yahweh Elohim. Phenomenal! Because until now, I was teaching that Elohim is only in chapter 1, and in chapter 2 and 3, you have systematically Yahweh Elohim. And you heard this on my previous podcasts. Now, I am changing my mind. But the text is still the text, and I'll go over it. It's splendid. You have four times Elohim on the lips of the serpent and then on Eve. She fell in the trap and then Yahweh Elohim comes to judge the man hiding, which means it is the same character that gave him the commandment. So character-wise, Yahweh Elohim is not Elohim. My hearers, just bite the bullet and bite your tongue.
don't react, just listen to me, and then do whatever you wish, I don't care. I'm going to turn 77, but I'm teaching you where the problem lies. In other words, the hearer in the reader response approach feels the text instead of hearing it as a prelude to understanding it and thus debating it. In other words, I'm inviting you to debate what I'm saying. But people don't do this nowadays. That's your opinion, Father Paul, or your classic, you remember the students, you know, and I have mine. But I'm not going to allow you this, because in the text, ultimately, what matters is the opinion of Yahweh Elohim. Not only Elohim, Yahweh Elohim, because he is the one who issued the command, and he is the one who judges Adam and who issues the curses. That's no joke, friends. The character Elohim does not issue the curses in chapter 3. It is Yahweh Elohim. What is the importance of all that? Well, that's the trap. You have to keep listening to my podcasts. Am I good or what, Father Bosk? I'm good. Okay? So remember the example of Metropolitan George Hodor on the plane. He ended up not debating with me. You should read that poetry. Okay, I decided not to read it. <laughs> but I'm not interested. Okay? So, hearing is a prelude to understanding and thus debating, not understand it for yourself. That's another thing I dislike in modern society. I understand for myself. I mean, imagine your children at home telling you that when you asked me not to eat all the ice cream, what you meant is for me to eat all the ice cream. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network. 